Some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Perhaps you've heard that quote before. It's uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., not the more famous junior, but senior. It was popularized by a song by Johnny Cash, No Earthly Good. You know, I, I get the idea that they're getting at. Some people have their heads stuck in the clouds. They're, they're dreaming of better things, greener grass in the future. They're, they're always looking forward, so much so that they're doing nothing in the present. You know, the problem, though, and, I, and Mr. Holmes and Mr. Cash will have to forgive me, the problem I have is that I'm not sure I've ever met such a person. Uh, in a blog post called, I Do Not Aspire to Be a Regular Guy, John Piper writes, It is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is, I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. In other words, I don't know that the problem is so much that there are heavenly-minded people that are of no earthly good, but there are many, 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 many people, Christian and especially non-Christian alike, who are so earthly-minded as to be of no heavenly good. Their mind is on the things of this world. They're concerned about the experiences they can have in this life, the, the pleasures they get to experience. They're, they're caught up in the possessions they can have. They're caught up in the entertainment they can get from this world. They're caught up in the things of this world so much as to do nothing for their own personal holiness or for the kingdom of God in advancing it beyond its borders. Now, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, really, this letter is, a, is a, a letter for thinkers. You can think of the statue, chin on knuckles. This is a letter for thinkers. If, and, and this isn't a theme that we've drawn out too much in our reading and in our preaching of this letter so far. But Paul continually tells them to think like this. Consider these things. Have this mindset. And although he doesn't explicitly say it, I think the point that Paul wants us to get in the second half of chapter 3 is that we need to adopt an eternal mindset. To an adopt an eternal mindset or a heavenly mindset. To not be so entrenched in thinking and, and knowing the things of this world, but instead to be thinking and knowing the things of God, the things of eternity, of eternal significance. And so we see, starting in verses 12 through 16, that we are to adopt an eternal mindset by running in a relentless pursuit of Jesus. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. If you remember two weeks ago, or if you go and read the beginning of chapter 3, Paul gives a, a long vision of how his accolades, his resume, his past, all those things that he had thought were good and meaningful, he no longer considers a value because now he has known Christ. And compared to knowing Christ, all that other stuff falls away. But he wants to make clear to the Philippians that he doesn't think he's perfect, that he hasn't already obtained it. Even in verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul is trying to be very clear 
A mature believer is a humble believer. In fact, thinking that you're very mature and, and near perfect is a sure sign that you are neither of those things. It's a sure sign that you lack the humility of Christ. So Paul wants to be very clear. I've given you this great vision of how everything in my past is a loss for the gain of knowing Christ, but I don't think I'm perfect. I don't think I've made it yet. But, he says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's because of the transforming power of Christ Jesus making Paul his own that Paul now seeks to make this goal and this prize of knowing Christ and all the benefits of Christ and seeing the future that is available in Christ. He tries to make it his own. It might call to mind uh, chapter 2, verse 12, where he says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are working out what God has worked in us. In verse 13, he uses the metaphor of a race. That's why I say that we are supposed to adopt an eternal mindset by running in a relentless pursuit of Jesus. Not because we all need to get on a track and run and pursue fitness, although maybe some of us do. But that's not really the point. He's using a metaphor of a race, of a running. Look in verse 13. He says, one thing I do. He doesn't consider that he's made his own, but one thing he does Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind. Any runner is going to tell you, if you spend your whole time trying to run a race and look behind you the whole time, you're going to be a complete failure. You're going to fall, you're going to trip, you're not going to know where you're going. You might get to have a good view of the people behind you, but they won't be behind you for long if you keep looking at them. And so he says, eyes forward, I press on toward the goal. I look at what lies ahead. He says, I press on toward the goal, the goal of knowing Christ. Not just knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ. The goal of experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection. The goal of living a crucified life like Christ does, taking up on ourselves the cross. You think of Luke 9.23, when Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Christian life is one of living into the life of Christ. And so Paul tells us to press on like a runner in a race, press on, reach your arm out, cross that finish line. Don't hold out. Give it your all. Run in a relentless pursuit, but it's a relentless pursuit of Jesus himself. It's a pursuit of Christ. It's not a pursuit of worldly gain. It's not a pursuit of worldly entertainment. It's not a pursuit of ourselves. It's a relentless pursuit of Christ, knowing Christ, becoming like Christ, and making known Christ to this world. So he calls us to pursue this one goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In achieving that goal and running toward that goal, we are those who are being called upward, heavenward, in God, to God in Christ Jesus. It's not just a mindset of looking to Christ, it's an eternal mindset. This is something that we all have to do as individuals. 
The reality is there are things in our past, there are things that lie behind us that we sometimes allow ourselves to get distracted by. There may be that one sin or that one series of sins for which Christ's blood has been shed and we have been forgiven, yet we again and again and again dwell on feeling like we are inferior to other Christians or to Christ because we just can't get over it. Or perhaps what lies behind is a habitual sin, not just something in the past, but something that even though you have come to Christ and you have repented and believed, you continue to sin in this area of your life. Or maybe it's simply that something in your past you are still glorying in. Maybe it's not just a sin. Maybe it's a good thing that you still just take pride in, sinful pride in. But Paul would tell us to forget what lies behind and move forward. Move forward, keeping our eyes on the goal. If we get distracted by those things, we cannot reach the goal of Christ. If we are distracted by the sin that Christ has conquered, we won't be able to focus on him. Our eyes will be focused behind us and not ahead of us. For, for that one sin that we just can't feel forgiven about, we need to know that 1 John 1, 9 promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just because you mentally or emotionally can't get past that sin, you need to realize that that sin has been forgiven. If we confess our sins, it has been forgiven. It, and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness because we have given it to the Lord. We do not need to continue in slavery and subjection to that sin. Instead, we need to look to Christ who forgave us for it. If it's a habitual sin that we continue in, that we just can't shake, we can't put it to death on our own, we need to hear the words of James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We need to know that if we keep our sins in the dark, that's exactly where they want to be. When we keep our sins in the dark and we hide them, well, then they have power over us. Because every interaction with a fellow brother or sister, every interaction with a non-Christian who knows that we're a Christian is hypocrisy. Because we have not brought that sin to light. That doesn't mean you need to get up on a Sunday morning and have an ethereal experience of confessing to a whole congregation. But it does mean that you need to find a faithful brother and sister in your life that you can confess your sin to and have them pray for you. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, and through it you may be healed. Not just an accountability partner to keep you from sinning again, although that's a good thing, but someone who will pray for you as you confess specific sin. Why? So that your eyes aren't focused on the evil sin in your heart, but they're focused on the perfect perfect savior on the cross for you and likewise if there's something in your past that you were glorying in that you were reveling in just hear the words that it is a loss considered to the gain of knowing christ considering knowing christ everything is a lost loss whatever accomplishments you have whatever achievements you have made whatever sin in your past that you kind of take pride in still it is a loss compared to knowing Christ 
So we pursue Christ relentlessly. And this isn't just a problem for us as individual Christians, is it? This is a problem for whole churches. As we focus on the past instead of looking forward to the future. You know, you've probably heard this before. It's incredibly hard to drive a car trying to move forward if you're busy looking in the rearview mirror. And sure, it's fun to look in the rearview mirror. You can look at that nice car behind you that's on your tail that you are pretty annoyed at. And you get angry at, and it's kind of nice to let off some of that steam with the car behind you. Uh, The other day we were driving, and Molly remarked that I'm not so much an angry driver as I'm a disappointed driver. So instead of driving around and going, getting mad at people cutting me off, I'm kind of like, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? You You can do better than that. That's what I tell people as I'm driving in the car. And if you've ridden with me, you've probably experienced that a little bit. The rearview mirror can be fun. As you look to the kids in the back who are finally asleep after a long vacation and you're just glad they're not hitting each other and and, and fighting and being loud. Or as you use it to to fix your makeup. I know a few people who do that, although now they focus more on their phones than their makeup. The rearview mirror can be a lot of fun, but it doesn't get you in the right direction, does it? If you focus on that mirror, you will never get where you're trying to go. You might run into a pole or a tree or into another car, but you're not going to make it down the road very far. In that same way, if we idolize the past, if we focus on the past, if we focus on those things that lie behind instead of moving forward in a relentless pursuit of Jesus and what he is doing in the present and what he will do in the future, we will get lost. We will crash. We will not move forward as God would have us do. And so Paul says, lest you disagree with him, he says this in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If you think you're mature, think otherwise. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The truth we have attained is that the goal is Jesus and nothing should stop us from moving forward, keeping our eyes on him and pursuing him with everything we have. When we get caught up in what's behind us, we will not get where we are going. Now Paul moves on from running to walking. Look at verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, Paul's just admitted in verse 12 and verse 13, he does not have it all together. He is not perfect. He is not fully mature. He is not complete. But he says this, join in imitating me. He doesn't say, let us all together join in imitating the perfect Christ. And he's made very clear in this letter up to this point that Christ is the goal. Christ is what we look at. Christ is where we keep our eyes. But he actually tells them To imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Us being several examples already given. In chapter 2, he gives us the example of Christ himself. He says, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Later in chapter 2, he gives us two other examples. Timothy, his, his co-worker, who they knew when they started the church in Philippi, And Epaphroditus, who is from that congregation, he gives them two other brothers to look at as examples. And now he has given his own example of one who had all the right credentials and had done all the right things, but now considers all that as worthless compared to knowing Christ. That is the example he gives, and he wants them to know that he realizes he's not perfect, but they should still imitate him. 
Why? Because God wants us to see when we look forward and we see on the horizon Jesus Christ. He wants us to see all the people in our peripheral who are moving in the right direction. And he wants us to see them and follow them because they will be a help to us. We cannot do, we cannot do the Christian life on our own. As soon as we do, we will actually cease to focus on Christ as we should. Because it's the community of believers who can continually, continually point us to the Word and point us to Christ and remind us that we are forgiven in Him and if we focus on Him, everything else will get in order. I remember when I was doing driver's uh, education, which I'm not sure that y'all have that here, uh, but we were required to do it in Oklahoma. I mean, I know you have it here, but you're not required to do it in the same way. We were required to do it in Oklahoma. And one of the things I remember driving in the car, you know, one of those cars that has brakes on the other side. A lot of you uh, wives wish you had brakes on the other side. But I was in that car and I was driving, and I remember him telling me, continually look at the horizon and use your peripheral to do everything else. He said, if you obsess with looking at and making sure you stay in the lines, you, you will do this all the way through, the whole lane. He said, but if you look out... Your peripheral vision will fix the rest. Now, some of you may have bad peripheral vision, so ignore what I'm saying for the sake of driving. But for the sake of following Christ, if we continually look at him and use our peripheral to guide us, to to see examples of other people who are walking in that direction, we can follow them. And some of them, this is the hard part, some of them are better at following Jesus in some of the areas of their life than we are in some of the areas of our life. It takes great humility, it takes great humility to recognize that we need someone to imitate, that we need someone to follow. And it's really easy on keeping our eyes on Christ to say, I'm on this road alone. He is the only perfect one. He's the only one I can begin to imitate. But humility says there are plenty of people moving in that right direction, enough that you can look at them and follow them. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Throughout Scripture, we are called to imitate those who follow the word of God, who speak the word of God, who proclaim the word of God. This is why Robert Murray Machane, the the Scottish pastor, said that the thing that congregations need most from their pastors is their pastor's holiness. Because they need someone that they can follow. Now, now it's to be clear, it's not to say that anyone that we would follow other than Christ would be perfect. We imitate them, but we don't solely follow them because only Christ is worthy of our complete obedience, our complete allegiance, and our complete submission to. However, he has given us people in our lives who in one area or many are more mature than we are. Even pastors, shockingly enough, need to find people they can fall in behind. There are areas of my life, there are areas of our other elders' lives where we need someone that we can follow. And that takes great humility, not just on the part of leaders, but on the part of everyone in the church. Because at some point, everyone has to say, I'm not perfect, I have to fall in line and imitate somebody. I need to find someone who will disciple me, who will raise me up, who will point me to Jesus and help me follow him better. And in doing so, the most fearful situation you can be in is if you're in the front of a line with a bunch of people behind you. Because one of the two things is true. Either you've put yourself there and you're not worth following, 
Or a bunch of people fell in after you and you need to quickly find someone you can follow and help you along. We must join in imitating those who walk according to the example that we have in Christ and in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and many others that we know in our own lives. But we must be weary of who we follow because they're not all good walkers. Look at verse, starting in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They don't walk as advocates. They don't walk as ambassadors. They don't walk as preachers of the cross of Christ or followers of the cross of Christ. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. So you have to be very careful who you follow and who you submit to and who you are willing to imitate. Paul says their end is destruction. If you are following Christ and walking according to the cross, your end, your goal is Jesus, but their end is destruction. That's what lies at the end of their path. Their God is their belly, that is, their their gluttony, their passions, their appetites, their lust control them. They are not controlled by being virtuous people submitting to Christ, but instead they are people who follow their passions, and they glory in their shame. Not only are they shameful and sinful, but they find means to a purpose to glory in it. And he says this, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are so earthly minded that they are of no heavenly good. Their end is not a, a beautiful heavenly relationship with Christ. Their end is destruction. They aren't growing in holiness. Their God is their belly. They do not forget the shame that lies behind. Instead, they glory in it. And their minds are set on earthly things. But instead, Paul calls us to adopt an eternal mindset. How? By walking like a mature believer. Walking like mature believers, not walking like those who walk as enemies of the cross, who will lead us astray, but walking like a mature believer. And the only way we know that the people in front of us are mature believers is if we can tell that they're walking in the right direction. Are they pursuing Christ with a relentless passion or not? And if they are not, if they are, if they are passionately pursuing their own destruction, their own appetites, their own shame these earthly things, then we should not walk like them at all. Paul tells us, looking at verse 20 and 21, he wants to contrast the picture of those who live with their mindset on earthly things with the Philippians. Look in verse 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Their citizenship is simply of this world. Their master is this world. They've decided who they serve. But our citizenship, for those who are in Christ, is in heaven. And it's from heaven we await a Savior who is coming again. The Lord Jesus Christ, he has come before, humbled himself, took the body and the soul of a human. 
He lived a perfect life that we could not. He died on a cross, a sinner's death, a shameful death, but he did not deserve it because he had never sinned. He died taking on himself the sin of the world and was raised to newness of life, raised into a glorious resurrected body where he sins and sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But brothers and sisters, he is coming again. And when he returns, he won't just be a crucified Savior. He won't be just a risen Savior. He will be a glorious Savior who was coming to set things right and to bring those who are citizens of heaven into his kingdom fully and finally. And those who are citizens merely of this world will have no part in him. So we run in pursuit of Christ. We walk like a mature believer. But we have to be patient and await and await and await Christ's return and the glorification of our body. Our bodies can run, but they will break down. Our bodies can walk, but they may fail. But Christ is returning to recreate our bodies anew, to bring us into a glorified body in which we can worship Christ with no stain of sin, waiting Christ's return. In the fellowship class this morning, we talked about the patience that it requires waiting on Christ's return. Uh, Harold did a great job teaching from the book of James. And, and he went to a passage that I think is relevant for us this morning because we can be impatient with the Lord sometimes. We can be like those saints in Revelation or the psalmist in the Old Testament who says, How long, O Lord? I'm tired of this body that is breaking down, I'm tired of this world that seems like it's going astray. But God gives us this message in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is the Lord taking so long? Because he wants to see people saved. He wants to see people come to Christ. And we need to be patient upon the Lord and realize that he is waiting for us to fulfill the mission of bringing his heavenly kingdom to this earth. We wait, we await Christ's return because he has a mission for us today and it is see lost souls come to Christ. It is see broken people healed. It is see people who are lost in their sin be found in the Son. And so we must adopt an eternal mindset by awaiting Christ's return and the glorification of our body. And that waiting, that patience, it's not sitting and twiddling our thumbs. We await Christ's return by running in pursuit of him, by walking like a mature believer. It is a waiting that is not inactive and passive, but very active. It is a waiting that doesn't just say, well, God will take care of it. He's coming again. You know, I'm just going to sit here and waste away. Because Jesus is going to roll up in his death star and just blow up the earth, and it'll all be over, and we can start again. No, Christ is returning to bring his kingdom to this earth and our mission today as we pray to the Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prayer and that is our mission to bring God's kingdom to earth 
We do this through good works. Not works that save us, but good works that are done from a foundation of being saved. We do this by preaching the gospel, by speaking the word to others, and by praying continually for the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 1, we adopt an eternal mindset by standing firm in the Lord. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. With an eternal mindset, we can stand firm. Because although we run in pursuit of Christ and we walk like a mature believer and we await Christ's return, what can they do to us? We stand firm thus in the Lord because we realize that no matter how we are faithful to Him, we do everything with a boldness saying, come what may. Come what may. If my coworker wants to avoid me at work because I was willing to talk about Jesus, come what may. If I have to lose my job because I am too busy using it as a witness to Christ, come what may. It, what can they do to me? The worst they can do is take my body. And Jesus says, do not fear those who can destroy the body only. We need to recognize that an eternal mindset is one that says, I know the future. Now, I'm not saying I know tomorrow or the next day or the next day. I don't know all the specifics and all the details. I don't want to boast in tomorrow. But I do know that at the end, what happens? Christ returns and Christ wins. Christ returns and Christ wins. I don't have to question whether there's a victory at the end. In fact, I know the victory has been secured by the work in the past. Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I know that when Christ returns, he is simply proclaiming and establishing the victory that he has already won. I know, I know that despite not knowing all the details of my life or the future, when the Lord returns, I know what happens. It's not a question mark. I, I think of that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and it talks about the devil, and it, and it says that one word will fell him. One word. Think about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and all the soldiers came and he speaks to them and they all fall down. We think of the beginning of creation which God creates. It says, he says, let there be light. He speaks that into existence. In, 1 John, or in John 1, it says that it is the word that God speaks through. We have nothing to fear because when Christ returns, all he needs is a word in order to bring victory. Having that eternal mindset says that I can run in pursuit of Christ jumping all the hurdles, avoiding all the dangers, looking forward because I know what is coming. I can walk like a mature believer now, even if it leads to persecution, even if it leads to people looking at me funny or treating me differently. I can walk like a mature believer now because I know what happens. I can wait. I can wait for Christ's return. I can preach Christ's return. I can be confident in Christ's return. Even if people say, you silly Christian, why are you thinking like that? How do you know? He's been so long. As the passage tells us, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day for the Lord. As, as Harold said this morning, it's really just been like two days since Christ left. We await Christ's return and we are able to stand firm facing the arrows of the enemies of the cross, facing anything that comes to us. Why? Because we know how it ends. We know the ending of the story. 
Now, it doesn't completely take all the suspense out. Some of you go and you read mysteries or thrillers, and, and you might be one of those people who goes to the very end and you read the ending before you read the book. Now, that takes all the suspense out of it. But you know what? It doesn't ruin it that much. They've actually done studies on spoilers. You know what a spoiler is when someone tells you uh, the ending to a story before you know it? They've done studies where people who have stories spoiled for them still enjoy the movie or the book or the whatever more than people who don't know the ending. Well, the good thing is we can enjoy this life so much more. You know why? Because we know the ending. We know the ending of the story. We know how it ends. And this morning, I want to end with these words. Of course, we need to adopt an eternal mindset, running in relentless pursuit of Christ, walking like a mature believer, awaiting Christ's return and the glorification of our body, and, and in all these things, things, standing firm in the Lord. But I want to end with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Let's pray.